We learned about the unique and special laws pertaining to an earthenware vessel. This earthenware vessel had the ashes of the red heifer ritual. And it was touched by the carcass of a crawling animal, which is, source, which is a source of impurity. On its side, now we learned earlier that a klicheres, an earthenware vessel, can only receive contamination from within, not from the exterior. Here it was touched on its side. Toher, not only is the vessel pure, but the ashes also retain ritual purity. Because an earthenware vessel does not receive, does not contract impurity. Even with regard to the laws of red heifer and all of its stringencies. However, he niach hakli, if he placed the utensil, the container, al gabe asheres, over the carcass of this crawling animal, even though the vessel does not become impure, because it's not in it. The ashes become impure. Shanem, as it says, that this shall be placed outside the camp, in a place of purity. To have something capping impurity is not a place of purity. This is not considered a place of purity. Not only does this apply, if he places it upon the carcass, even if he placed this earthenware vessel on top of a food, which is a secondary derivative of impurity. It's a rabbinic derivative. The ash will become impure. In a place of purity, it should not be all covering any type of impurity whatsoever. So also, similar rulings apply to klicheres, to an earthenware vessel. Which had the ashes of the red heifer. It was placed on a window. We learned many, many detailed scenarios of windows. A window in a house that's impure. However, this window was separate. If the container was hanging within the inner space of the house, the ashes become impure. And we learned these details earlier in great detail. This window is not open at Tepach, so it doesn't create an entity. However, if it was not hanging in, if it has an opening of a Tepach, it is impure, because then the impurity rises through this opening. What if this utensil, this container, was made of stone, not earthenware, which never contracts ritual impurity? Whether this window <coughs> has the opening of a handbreadth, chamber or not, the ash retains ritual purity because stone does not contract ever ritual impurity. So also any utensil, any container that has ash, a mayim, ash of the red heifer or water of the red heifer mixture, sanctified. So you have a, con- a container that has either water or ash, red heifer water, red heifer ash, or both. And it is sealed closed. And we learned this one in great detail earlier. It's based in the Chumash. That if it has a tzomit puzzle, if it has a sealed, if it's in a sealed container, it doesn't contract ritual impurity. So here we have ash or water or both in a sealed container. Great, can't get better. And it's in the structure, tent of a corpse, a human corpse. The sealed container doesn't help, doesn't offer protection. This is a new law. We never touched anything like this. Why? Both the ashes and the water are considered impure. And here the Rambam makes the rule, the statement, The rule is that anything having to do with the ashes of the red heifer is not saved, is not protected, because it's in a sealed container, as would be anything else. It must be placed in a pure setting. Once again, this is not a pure setting. I, I'm going to have another sip of tea, thank you. I made a bracha earlier. Thank you. And so also. Foods and liquids of holy are also not saved through a sealed container, which means foods or liquids that are associated with a sacrifice. Because of their sanctity, they're also not saved with a sealed container in an impure place. But water that has not been sanctified, meaning not been mixed with the ashes, and an empty utensil, which is pure and ready to be used for the sin offering, is protected in a sealed container. When does this apply? If the owner of this sealed container was in a state of ritual purity, then the fact that it's in a sealed container protects it. However, if the owner became impure, if the owner of this container contracted ritual impurity, 
The water also becomes disqualified, no matter where it's located. Spell it out, for example. If a person's water, this special water, was in a sealed container, so that should protect it. And the person, the person and the water, are both in a tent structure with a human corpse. They both, both the person and the water, take on ritual impurity. Because of the fact that the person is ritually impure, his water also becomes ritually impure, and the sealed container will not protect it from becoming impure. If he was outside this tent of human corpse, and the water that was not yet mixed with the ashes of the red heifer was inside the tent, but it was in a sealed container, they're both ritually pure. Because he was outside the tent, why shouldn't he be ritually impure? The water was sealed, and the owner was pure. Who befnim or if he is inside? And the water is outside. Amazing law here. Because he is inside and he becomes impure, his water, even though it's outside the tent, also becomes impure because it's his water. Wow. Hey, five... Someone who purified himself for the sake of officiating with this ritual of red heifer. This person who's going to officiate, who's ready to officiate with the red heifer ritual, was standing on an oven or any other similar implement. Vessels, utensils that had not been declared pure for the purposes of the red heifer ritual. And he extended his hand outside the oven. And he's holding the utensil that has the water of purification. So he's standing on the oven or on another implement that had not been purified and he extended his hands outside the space of the oven while holding the receptacle. Similarly speaking, a bar was placed on this oven. And there are two receptacles, two little pails hanging from them which have water of this ritual. One from one side and one from the other side. The receptacles are declared impure. Because they're not in a place which is pure for the purification process. Because they are supported by the oven and the oven was not declared as a ritually pure area for the purposes of sin offering. So it's as if they are placed on top of it. But since it was necessary for their support, they're considered as its space. But if the person was standing on the oven, and in his hand is an empty container, an empty receptacle, that was purified for the purification process. Or water that was not yet sanctified. This retains its ritual purity. If he's standing away from the oven, and extends his hand to the window, and he took a utensil, a container that had the water of purification, and passed it over over this stove, over this oven. This remains pure because passing over an impure entity does not cause it to be considered as being in an impure place because he only passed over it. Also, when one sprinkled this water, and in the process of traveling, the sprinkling water passes over impurity, like a place that is fit for sitting, or a place that is fit for lying, which we explained earlier, is considered impure for the purposes of the red heifer mixture, because Azov can sit on them even though he didn't, or because Azov can lie on them even though he didn't, and Azov being that it's only passing over, it is considered pure. Verse <coughs> 6, a utensil, a receptacle, which has water of the red heifer ritual and a receptacle that has holy food having to do with the sacrifice and one receptacle one container touched another the sacrifice container touched the ritual water container that experience defiles the utensil which has the water of the red heifer and everything in it but although it conveyed ritual impurity to the container holding the red heifer water it itself retains purity wow so also if a person who purified himself for the ritual of the red heifer touched Mishneyam, two of them, Mishneyoda with both hands, as they're sitting on the ground, the person conveys impurity to the container holding the water of the, sin offer, of the, of the red heifer, because that person who became ritually purified and ready to go for the ritual of the red heifer, Nitma became impure by touching the utensil, which had not been purified. Remember we learned earlier that before somebody is ready to go and deal with the ritual of red heifer, he has to immerse another time. 
Here, he immersed, but now he touched something that didn't. He now causes the water to become defiled as well. This is consistent with the rules we learned in the previous chapter. Zion 7, earlier we learned that both containers are on the ground. Now if he picks up both containers, each with a different hand, they're both impure. The one of the sin offering becomes impure. Because a person who touched the utensil, not ready for the purity level of the sin offering, touched it. That we understand. Why did the container holding sacrifice items become impure, become defiled? Because of the person who lifted it. We learned earlier that anyone who touches the water becomes impure. That's another form of defilement. He has now, through lifting, the sacrifice container defiled it. Which can convey impurities through carrying, because it carries through due to the container of the holy. If, for example, this vessel containing the sacred sacrifice matter was wrapped in paper, and he lifted it with paper, without touching it, and he lifted the container with the red heifer waters in his other hand, in this scenario they're both pure. Because he didn't either touch the utensil, it did not become impure for the purpose of sin. But if he touched the utensil of the holy. Sacrifice matter with his hand, even if the red heifer container was being held via a paper, they're both impure. Ches 8. Hesit, he moved. Both of these utensils, one containing the water of the red heifer, the other containing sacrifice matter. He didn't touch them, he just indirectly moved them. They both retain ritual purity. Because a utensil which is not pure for the purpose of sin offering, it does not contaminate with impurity as Hatar, the one which is impu- the one declared pure lechatos for the ritual of red heifer, until he touches it with his hand, moving in and of itself is not sufficient to convey ritual impurity. Unless it is fit to have a zov lie on it or sit on it, like a chair or a cot, but here this is not a chair and it's not a cot. Test 9. Whenever there is a situation where, as we learned earlier in great detail in the laws of Truma, when something is in an uncertain state, we're not sure if it's impure or not for the purposes of Truma, as we will also explain when we get to those detailed laws of purity and impurity, is also ritually pure for the purposes of red heifer purity. Any type of impurity where we leave it in suspense, the unsurety causes us to leave it in suspense. If they developed in the ritual of the red heifer, they should be poured out. They should, you should get rid of them. And he explains here that the rationale is because of the doubt that arose, the status of the article in question has been downgraded and it will never be considered as acceptable again. With regard to Truma, since it's food and it's forbidden to destroy it unnecessarily, it cannot be disposed of or destroyed unless we know it's for sure impure, because Truma is holy. Therefore, we wait for such a situation to occur, but here there's no restriction to destroying water or ashes designated for red heifer. Destroy it, it's not again. However, if pure entities were used on the above utensils, or if a person became involved in such a situation where the doubt causes the ashes and the water to be disposed of, so he says that in this case, rafters are not considered as utensils. So therefore, they are pure with regard to truma or sacrificial foods and the purification process involving the ashes of the red heifer. And this is, if the pure entities were used on the above utensils, or if a person became involved in such a situation where the doubt causes the ashes and the water to be disposed of. Finally, Yud 10, the closing paragraph of this chapter. What if a dried fig that is truma, and truma has extra ritual impurity, fell into water sanctified for the purification purposes of the red heifer? When the tola was then taken out and eaten, in the so if it is the size of an egg, the minimum measure for foods to impart impurity, as we will learn in the section of impurity of foods, this renders the water impure. Whether this particular dried fig was pure or impure. Because as we learned earlier, all foods, even holy sacrifice foods, truma foods, are not considered pure for the purposes of the red heifer mixture. And anyone who eats it, has a liability for heavenly death penalty. Why? 
Because when a person eats truma, he's liable for a heavenly death penalty if he's not permitted to. And in this case, it was impure truma. So it takes on a very stringent identity. But if it's not as big as an egg, the water retains its purity. Because someone who eats because food does not convey impurity, ritual impurity to other things, it has to have the minimum size of an egg, as we will learn. And this minimum size applies to truma, kohen food, to sacrifice food, and the purification process. End of chapter 14. Rambam Mishneh Torah. Hilcha is Pora Aduma, the laws of the red heifer. And today we actually conclude this section of the laws of the red heifer with Mazel and with Brocha. Peter Kamish Osar, chapter 15. I'm just going to have some tea here. Thank you. Okay. Before we actually begin, by way of introduction, we know the famous teaching that the laws of the red heifer are very perplexing. Even King Solomon, wisest of all men, said, I understood the logic of every commandment. I struggle with the logic of this commandment. And specifically, he spelled out what his struggle is. In addition to the fact that purity and impurity is a struggle for the human mind to comprehend because it is divine decree. It's not clean and dirty. Pure and impure has nothing to do with showering. It's a spiritual condition. It's self-challenging intellectually. But as Shlomo HaMelech himself expressed, this is perplexing because mitaher es hatmeim, mitaher et hatmeim, it purifies those who are defiled. It purifies those who are impure, which is okay. But if somebody is pure, who touches it? That pure person becomes impure. Said Shlomo HaMelech. Doesn't make sense. How can something purify the impure and make impure the pure? This chapter is dedicated to that idea. What does it mean when we say that the mixture of the red heifer makes impure those that are pure? And we get into a lot of scenarios and definitions. Fascinating. Okay. Got my wires crossed. Never get your wires crossed. Rule number one is if somebody touches this mixture of the red heifer concoction, which we learned earlier is made up of living water and the ashes of the red heifer and hyssop grass and uh, erez, eats erez, uh, oak uh, tree, the palm tree, the tall palm. A little bit of wood, the ashes, living water, that's this mixture. But he touches it, shelo not because he's going to administer it to someone, not because he's working with it, not because he's about to purify someone. No, that would be in the line of duty, that's okay. Here he just touches it, for no reason. Or as they used to say in Canada, just like this. They don't know how to say like this. They say like this. I'm just kidding, please, I ask all the Canadians to forgive me. Bain Adam, whether it's man, bain kalim, or it's a utensil, any other vessel, tome, because something touched this mixture, not in the line of use, that person or utensil becomes impure. However, the impurity level is limited. It makes the person impure, but not his garments, not the clothes he's wearing, which means that the person does not, in turn, make his own garments impure. Shanemar, all of this is based on a verse. Anybody who touches this water, which is referred to in the Torah as Mehanida, the red heifer water, becomes impure until evening. From here we learn that this water mixture called the red heifer mixture, which the Torah refers to as Mehanida, is, is one of the more primary sources, a father, of the primary sources of impurity. Shal Torah, biblical impurity. The Torah says that this mixture of water and ashes is a source of major impurity. And we learned much, much earlier that there is the Abiyavot the grandfather of impurity, which is the human corpse. There is the Ab the person who touches the corpse, and then it goes down in gradation, level by level by level. This water, when touched, not for the reason of using it properly, becomes an Ab becomes a primary source of sharing impurity. Vitumas Magon Becholshu. It doesn't matter how much volume of water was touched by this person or utensil, even as we say here in Yiddish, even Pokito. Even just a little bit. Makes the person or the utensil who touches it out of the line of duty, so to speak, impure. Furthermore, if he touched water that had such a great volume, this mixture, that it was enough to perform the sprinkling ritual. And as we learned earlier, <clears throat> what does it take to have enough of this mixture to perform the sprinkling ritual? So that the top of the hyssop plant, which is like brushy, should be able to immerse in the water and absorb from the water. That's what it takes. That's to be enough of that liquid with the ashes so that the hyssop head should be able to be immersed in it and absorbed. If there is enough, then not only does it convey impurity when one touches it, but even when one carries it without touching it. For example, 
Here I have a utensil, happens to be a glass, and there is water in it, or as some people say, water. Here I am carrying it, I'm carrying the water, I'm not touching the water. That's an example of how I can carry something and not touch it. I'm touching the glass, which is touching the water. And therefore, somebody who touches it. Or, or who carries it. And here comes the key word. Not for need. Unnecessarily. Not because he's using it to purify somebody. He's just touching it or carrying it. Just like this. He conveys impurity. To garments. As long as he's touching it. As long as he's carrying it. Until the person separates from that which is making him impure. As long as the person is carrying this mixture of water unnecessarily, he also conveys the impurity to his garments. Why? Because it had a larger volume than before. Because the volume was large enough where it could actually be used. How do we know this? And here's a very tricky, very interesting lesson that the Rambam brings down. Shanem, as it says, quoting from the Torah portion of Chukas, says the Torah, quote, and one who carries this mixture of water has to wash his garments. The expression wash his garments means has to immerse himself and his garments in a mikvah. What do we mean, the one who sprinkles it? Are you really suggesting that the Kohen who officiates in the sprinkling, the person who is the sprinkler, that he becomes impure? No. He's doing a good thing. He's not becoming impure. We're not talking about somebody who's sprinkling the red heifer mixture on someone who's impure and doing what he's supposed to do. Because in Tier Es Atom, they said the Rambam approaches logically. If someone, through this ritual, has the ability to purify someone who's impure, here's a person who became exposed to human corpse, became impure, and Moshe goes and sprinkles this concoction upon him and makes him pure. If you can make somebody pure, how much more so, that the person who does it remains pure. You're not going to convey purity while you yourself become impure. So what is the verse talking about? From the oral law tradition we learned, that these words, enumerated in the Torah, the one who sprinkles this water, it's talking about that when the person unnecessarily touches this concoction, if there is enough to be if the volume was sufficient to accomplish purifying somebody, so it's a volume measure. Somebody who touches, someone who carries, may need this red heifer mixture of water, where it has enough volume where it could have purified somebody, but in his case, he's touching it, not for the practical purpose of sprinkling it on somebody. He's just touching it unnecessarily. That makes it impure because he was not doing it in proper usage. He was just touching it or carrying it. Because it's enough to have theoretically cleansed someone, it also conveys impurity to the garments. Now he says, as I already explained orally, how much volume are we talking about? Large enough to immerse the tops of the stalks of the hyssop plant in the water. If there's enough mixture of water and ash, so you can immerse the top of the hyssop plant, which is like a, a brush, which can absorb, that's enough. Now the Rambam qualifies, and he says, just as you think you understood what I'm saying, there's a new qualification. When does this apply that the waters of the red heifer convey impurity? If you touch it unnecessarily before you perform the mitzvah, which means that nothing was done yet with it. You haven't performed the commandment yet. And then somebody goes and touches them unnecessarily. But what if this whole scenario occurs? After the mitzvah was performed with this mixture of red heifer water, which means somebody went, administered it, and purified somebody. It's a done deal. Post-application, they do not convey impurity at all. Ketzad, for example, the Rambam always spells it out. As he used to say back in New Jersey, give me a for instance. If somebody immerses this hyssop plant, the top of it, and he successfully sprinkled upon an impure person, upon impure utensils, and the water was dripping, and just drip dropping from the impure person or object, and going to the ground, and somebody touched that water after it was sprinkled. Or as he's sprinkling it, some of the waters hits the ground. Or it hits the pure person. That's not what we're talking about. Those waters are pure, because it was in the line of duty. Or after the purification process. Somebody who touches those waters, they drip drop in the process of <clears throat> this ritual. Or after it, somebody who even carries them, Toher is pure. Similarly, if somebody dips the head of the hyssop plant, to sprinkle it upon an object that never can receive impurity. There are certain substances, like an animal, a living animal can never become impure. Or a stone can never become impure, as we learned earlier. So somebody unknowingly dipped this hyssop plant on top of it in water, he's going to sprinkle it on a living animal. 
When I was a kid, the famous living animal was Elsie the cow. He's going to sprinkle it on Elsie. <laughs> or he's going to sprinkle it on a stone somebody has a pet rock. Not that there's anything wrong with that. The water that drips off is kosher. To sprinkle with them. Can make sure be honest? We explained because the fact that you went and sprinkled this concoction on something that didn't need it doesn't count. Because it didn't need it. Living animals don't need it. Stones don't need it. But because therefore, because it's still valid water, because it's still potent, metamin tumas mechatas. If somebody touches it now, unnecessarily, it can still convey the impurity of the concoction of, of the mixture of the red apple water. The fish shall lay also mitzvahsan. Because unlike our scenario earlier, we did not fulfill the task at hand. They did not perform their mitzvah of purifying. Because whatever they sprinkled upon didn't require sprinkling. Because when he immersed the hyssop up in the concoction water, it was not for something that would be sprinkled that needed it. Because a living animal, for example, or a stone, never can become impure and therefore never needs to be purified. So that does not diminish from the potency of this mixture. And therefore, if somebody then touches it unnecessarily, it does convey impurity. This reminds me of an adorable story they used to tell back when I was a kid. That's when everybody looked up to the, uh, the Boy Scouts. There was nothing holier than the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts. So this Boy Scout came late to his group meeting. And the Scoutmaster says, young man, you're late. Why did you come late? He says, uh-uh, I was doing a good deed. I was helping an old lady cross the street. The Scoutmaster says, that's very good, but 45 minutes late? He says, yeah, she didn't want to cross. <laughs> It's like helping the old lady who doesn't want to cross, cross the street, you know. So you don't sprinkle the concoction unnecessarily on something that's not impure to begin with. You don't get points for that. It's what we call brownie points. Bays to, that was, by the way, a very long paragraph one. The mixture of the red heifer water, once it's mixed with ashes and all the rest, does not convey impurity to everything before you perform the mitzvah, as we said earlier, that before you perform the mitzvah, if you touch it unnecessarily or carry it unnecessarily, it conveys impurity. This does not apply, unless the water is fit for it and pure enough to be able to use it. But for some reason, if this water is unfit water, or impure, then all bets are off. doesn't count. If this water concoction became disqualified for any reason, what reasons could they be? What reasons could there be to disqualify this? We learned this earlier. For example, if a lot of regular water, a bottle of arrowhead water was mixed with it, or even sparklets, or an animal went and drank from it, or any other form of making something impure from any of the above list that makes them unfit, if, if somebody who is considered pure enough, he's a Kohen, he's pure enough to eat trumah, that's like really pure. If somebody touches them, that person becomes impure. Make sure the other, whether he touches it with his hand, which in other circumstances would only make the hand impure, make sure the rest of his body. But if somebody who is pure to administer the red heifer mixture touched it even with his hands, he remains pure so that this does not function once this whole process doesn't work, once the water has been declared impure. And the other impurity that it conveys to the truma eater is only a rabbinic level of impurity. Along the same lines, Gimel 3, If this water, Shenitmu became impure, and a person who was pure for the purpose of eating Truma touched them, touched the water, his vein, the other vein, the good whether with his hand or his body, Nitmu becomes impure because the water was impure previous to this. But if somebody who was purified for the purpose of this ritual touched them, Nitmu becomes impure. If he touched the rest of his body, he remains pure as he was. What if this mixture of water, remember we said it's in a container, it has to be drawn, especially, special as they say. What if regular spring water fell into it? Spring water. Like Perrier. That's spring water, right? And may mikvah or mikvah water. And may perish or juice. Apple juice. Orange juice. Tropicana. And rave. In rave mechata. So the question is, what is the majority of the substance? If the majority is the red heifer mixture, metamin bamasa, it will now cause impurity to be conveyed just by carrying it. However, if the majority is the juice or the other substance, if it's majority of this mixture is made of juice, and metamin, it cannot convey impurity. It can no longer convey impurity because 51% is now a different substance. And that's the litmus test. More than half. What if it's exactly 50%? Metamin, then they still convey impurity. Along the same lines, what if the ash of the red heifer, Shenisara becomes mixed, with regular oven ash, and he mixed into living water all of this ash, mixed ash, red heifer ash, and regular oven ash. 
What was the majority of the ash? If the majority was a red heifer, ash, then it can convey impurity. If the majority of the ash was regular of an ash, then it will not make anything else impure just by touching, but it will when carried. Hey, five, eight for kosher. Kosher ash, which means appropriate red heifer ash, which was placed upon water. We learned earlier that the procedure is you take the ash and you put it on the water, on the living water. But the water was not the right water, it was not fit. It was not the type of living water. That was prescribed, as we learned earlier. And somebody who was purified to be able to eat truma touched this concoction of real red heifer ash with inappropriate water. Maybe other people touched it with his hand, maybe go for his body, and it becomes impure. What if somebody was purified for this purpose of red heifer procedure? I feel beyond the with his hands. He retains spiritual purity because for the purpose of this, it's not considered usable. Here the Rambam gives us a very important halacha. What if this mixture of red heifer water became unfit for use, but it still has the potency to make impure? So you got to be careful what you do with this. It should not be mixed with clay or building mud because then you're just going to spread the impurity. It shouldn't be a stumbling block for other people. Unbeknownst to them, they're going to become impure because of this water. Remember, the Torah says this water is a source of impurity. Perhaps a person will touch this clay, this mud, and become impure. But one could argue, isn't there the concept of there is so much of this mud, doesn't it overwhelm the volume of the water? The answer is no. Because this is so potent, this has the potency of this special water which the Torah refers to as chatos, therefore it does not become diminished by volume. That's the concept of people, of nullification. Nullification does not work. And that's one of the special laws of the red heifer. Zion 7. Here's a situation where Porah, there was a thirsty cow, maybe Elsie, who drank the mixture of this red heifer water. It was thirsty. The water was living there. It looked like perfectly good water. At least to the mind of a cow. So now it becomes a holy cow. The problem is that the cow now ingested an impure substance because mechatos is a source of impurity. Biblically, as we learned earlier, if it's touched unnecessarily, certainly wasn't necessary for the cow to drink it. Even though the cow was slaughtered within 24 hours. So you can say that the water is still fresh. It was not ingested and processed yet in the body of the cow. It's still sitting there on the surface. It was ingested, but it was not absorbed. Nevertheless, even though she just drank it, its flesh remains pure. If you guard it as this ritual water, here this was not guarded. Obviously because the cow drank it. When they're guarded, they're not nullified. But when the cow drinks it, but will they become nullified? Because they're no longer guarded. Ches 8. Here's a situation. The person who's trying to purify people is trying to purify a whole bunch of people. So he goes up to the second floor, opens the window, and starts administering from this hyssop grass these, this water. He's using this application as a mess. Wholesale application. He's all of, and then, or who's all of, one of these people received the sprinkling. What did we learn earlier? Even a tiny drop of this mixture makes you pure. So all you need is a drop. So he got, he got two drops. He's fine. So he's pure. And now, when Yechazal subsequent to that, he entered into the Holy Temple. That's fine. I guess he's been in the mikvah as well as he's supposed to. It's all good. What's the problem? The problem is, suddenly somebody comes and says, Oy vey! The water is no good! There's something wrong with the mixture! No good! Spread the word! This guy's already in the base on English. Houston, we got a problem. This guy is considered exempt. He's not culpable for the terrible incriminating events or recriminating events which occur when somebody with impurity enters into the base on English. Which we learned about. He is exempt. Why? Why is he exempt? Because we make a halachic assumption, which is called a chazoka. We halachically, rightfully so, assume that when water is sprinkled on a lot of people, it has to be kosher. Otherwise, you can't trust anything. This is a safe assumption. This is a public deed that's being done on a lot of people. Somebody must have checked it out. It's a safe assumption. And therefore, in this case, when they find out later it wasn't, it's beyond his control. It's an accident. People are not culpable for accidents. It's almost like it's beyond his control. He's exempt. It's an accident. He's forced. He's coerced. There was nothing he could have done to control it. There's a principle that says, Ainus, if something is an accident beyond your control, Rachman apart to the Torah exempts. but in his Yochid, but if it was a private application, it was a private person, a private application sprinkling. I guess he also says not only the group, but is the window from a public place or from a private place? So here's private. 
And he enters into the Besamidish with him to Amayim Sulim, and then they find out that this water was not fit. Here he should have checked out, it was a very private event. He has to bring a sliding scale offer, as we talked earlier. <coughs> Why? Because he should have checked the water. And only then entered the Besamidish, because it was not a public application, it was a private application. Now he goes on to say, even if people would slip on the puddles of water, which drips to the ground, I guess if you have a low spot, then a little puddle will develop. Mechalin Sharabim coming from a public window where they applied the mixture of red heifer to a group of people. There's some and they stepped on it, and they entered into the base on Migdash, no problem, because the water touched them. They didn't have to suspect perhaps they became impure, perhaps this water is impure. Because otherwise they would have to be concerned with the water having been impure. Nine, Tess, what if somebody uses this hyssop reed, which has become impure, the hyssop reed became impure. How did it become impure? It's very simple. We learned earlier, when you take the hyssop reed to begin with, what are you thinking when you take it? If you're thinking of it as food, you want to put this hyssop stuff in your salad. Have a hyssop salad. Then food can become impure. It's already considered as if it's impure. As we learned with the laws of the red heifer mixture. If it can become impure, it's already impure. So this is this hyssop that was impure because it was harvested for food. Not that it really became impure. Im yesh so if it has the volume of an egg, which is the substance, the volume that is required to convey impurity, the water becomes unfit, and the sprinkling is unfit. So if it doesn't have that volume, the water is kosher, and its sprinkling is unfit. Because it doesn't have the volume. And this hyssop reed, Metama Chavede will convey impurity to the next Hisa Pride touches, but Chavede the Chavede and the next one to the next one, Afila Heimea, even if there are a hundred. Unlike the general laws of purity and impurity that it weakens as it goes on, in the case of Paraduma, we learned it never weakens. Shemein in the Chatas, because we don't count levels, and the levels become weaker and weaker, primary, secondary, tertiary, and so on and so forth. That doesn't work, as we learned by rabbinic decree, when it has to do with the Red Heifer. And finally, the closing paragraph of chapter 15 and the closing paragraph of the laws of the Red Heifer. If somebody lifts a utensil upon which water has been sprinkled, and there is upon this utensil enough water to be able to dip a hyssop plant in and have the head absorbed, which means there's still enough water to spray. But this vessel is just there. It has received the water from the spraying of, of making it pure, which means somebody made a utensil pure, and it absorbed enough water in its basin to be able to still do it. Is that considered water that can convey impurity or not? We learned earlier, when something becomes purified, that water doesn't count. But here there's enough water to do it again. He says, no, Torah is pure. Shamaim shosu mitzvah, because water with which the mitzvah of purification has been performed, ainon mitamim, do not have the potency to convey impurity, kameshabiyano, as we explained. And the Rambam concludes by saying, brich, rachamona, blessed be the merciful one, merciful one, referring to Hashem, our Almighty, blessed be God, this who grants assistance and who helped me with the composition of this. And that is the end of the laws of Torah Aduma. Rambam and Mishnah Torah. Today we begin a new section. Hilchais Tumas Tzoras, the laws of impurity due to biblical leprosy. And the Rambam says, yesh in this general mitzvah, as we count 613. There are Shmona mitzvahs, eight of these mitzvahs. Sheish mitzvahs, ase, eight positive mitzvahs. Ushtayim mitzvahs, and two negative mitzvahs, proton, and these are the detailed enumeration of the eight mitzvahs. Aleph, leheres, to rule. Mitzaras, odom, when it comes to leprosy of the human. Kedina, according to its rule, hakos as written in the Torah. In other words, instead of taking 20, 30, 40, 50 mitzvahs, the Rambam says one mitzvah, to rule as the Torah teaches with regard to human leprosy. Beis, two, shaleyokeit, simoni, tumah. You know, if somebody develops leprosy, he has a, a blotch, this, this type, that type, he's going to have a very simple solution. He'll cut off this, whatever it is, he'll cut it off. All done. No problem. He can't be declared impure because it's not there. So there's a mitzvah, you should not cut off the signs of impurity. Gimel, he should not shave the hair of a blemish of Taras impurity. We're going to learn that section of Taras as well, having to do with hair. That the person who is declared a leper should be recognizable and distinguished, should publicize the fact that he's a leper by having his clothes torn, his hair covered, and his hood coming down to his lips. He should be like a hoodie. Not a Yehudi. Five, Taras Taras. What is the process of purification of the person affected by biblical leprosy? <coughs> Six, that when he goes through the purification process, the leper should shave the hair off all of his skin, anywhere he has body hair. Zion, 
number seven of eight. Jin is the laws of a second category of leprosy. Tsaras, habeged, leprosy of the garment. We're going to learn that there are three kinds of leprosy, body, garment, and house. And eight is dine or din, tsaras, habayas, the laws of the leprosy of the house. Will be your mitzvahs, able to proclaim the explanation of these mitzvahs in the upcoming chapters. And I'm going to do something very unusual. I'm going to pause for a moment in our learning. And I'm going to quote orally the gist of the Rambam's closing statement in his 16 chapters on leprosy. This is the last paragraph of chapter 16. Says the Rambam, the word tsaras, which we translate as biblical leprosy, is a collective term which is used for many situations which have no necessary connection to one another. Because the whiteness of the skin of man is called tsaras. The falling out of the hair of man is called tsaras. The falling out of the beard of man is called tsaras, under certain circumstances. One's garments changing look. One's houses <coughs> developing stuff, also called tsaras. Leprosy. And this is the various conditions stated by garments and houses, where the Torah refers to it by one collective term, tsaras, biblical leprosy. So I want you to know, and this is a very famous Rambam, quoted all over, this is a no mimin This is not about nature. This is not from the natural realm. It's not from the customs of the world. It's not normal. Hello, says the Ram, oh, says the Ram, oh, it's a sign, Upella. it's a miracle, a wonder, which God at that time injected within the Jewish people to keep them distant from gossip, keep them far away from Loshon Hara, from evil talk. Because when one engages in speaking badly about someone else, Loshon Hara, first, God, send him, God sends him a message. The walls of his house turn colors, as the details will be taught. If he repents, fine. If not, then his house will be knocked down. If he doesn't learn a lesson from that, then the leather garments in his house will start turning colors and changing. If he repents, fine. If not, it'll be burned. If not, all of his garments will start turning colors. I guess even the polyester. No, that was just a, that was a joke. If he returns, fine. If he repents, fine. If he re- continues with his wicked path and allows all of his garments to be burned, as we will learn, then his skin is attacked. And the leprosy begins to attack his skin and he's going to be isolated to such an extent that he's not going to have anybody to talk to. He's not going to have a, a, an audience for his gossip. He's not going to have anybody to engage in with in Litsonus. Litsonus means mockery, scoffery, or lush and horror, or evil gossip. And this is the meaning when the Torah says, he's shown there. Be careful, watch out. As I used to say when I was a kid, watch out. With the plague of leprosy, what are you going to watch for? You're going to watch what you do. And by the way, so many people, when you say to them, why do you need to speak Lashon Hara? They say, but it's true. Lashon Hara is usually true. If it's not true, it's mostly Shemra, it's a different mitzvah. Then it's just spreading bad rumors. But it's unnecessary gossip. You're not trying to forewarn someone from making a bad investment with a, with a crook. You're just talking. In fact, in America, there's a magazine dedicated to that. It's called People Magazine. We just talk about people. It's a look check. Remember what God did to Miriam on the road. What does it mean? What did Miriam do already? She said to Aaron, her brother, some words disparaging Moshe and his level of prophecy. Miriam took care of Moshe when he was a baby. Our sages say Miriam was six years old when Moshe was born. She stood at the river and she watched Moshe. She was a good big sister. She took him to preschool. She raised him on her knees, says the Rambam. And she endangered herself to save him. And she didn't even speak badly. She just made a mistake. She compared him to normal prophets. Moshe was from another level of prophets. And he didn't care. It says Moshe was the most humble man of all men. He didn't get upset. Immediately she developed leprosy. How much more so? These wicked, imbecilic people who just sit and talk and talk and talk and talk about anything and everybody they can. Therefore, it's a good idea to stay away from them. Don't engage in conversation with them in order not to be caught in this trap. And this is what people do. People who are scoffers and mockers and wicked people, first they engage in conversation about nothingness. Then they switch to speaking about people. Then they switch speaking about good people, righteous people. And then they speak about prophets. And there's no limit to this. And he brings various verses. So he says, righteous people within the Jewish people, what do they do when they get together? They speak words of Torah. You know what I learned in class today? They speak words of encouragement to each other. And therefore, let us all endeavor to do this, because that's the way you spread goodness and kindness. And I'll just close with a famous teaching I heard from a colleague of mine, who said that the lowest level of people speak about people. The intermediate level of people speak about things. You should see the new car I got. You should see the vacation. What a beautiful house. What a ring. <laughs> wow, look. The highest level of people speak about ideas. Speak about thoughts. Speak about Torah. The Torah wants us to speak about ideas, and specifically God's ideas. So that's the 
last closing paragraph in chapter 16, which I wanted to begin with so we can all develop a finer appreciation of what this is about. We don't have biblical leprosy today. The medical leprosy listed in the AMA directory is a different condition. It has to do with skin. And for leprosy as we know it today, you need a good dermatologist. For leprosy in the Bible, you need a good Kohen. Different world. So now let's begin. Pay to Grecian, chapter 1. Now before we begin, I also want to point out that there are various opinions of various great commentators as to many details of this law. The Rambam is known for his line of thought and interpretation of many of these situations. Needless to say, we're learning Rambam. Not everything we learn in Rambam will correlate with what you may have learned in Rashi and Chumash. There are many issues that the Rambam and Rashi have as they interpret leprosy, as they do in many other mitzvahs. But of course, we are learning Rambam. Okay. Aleph, the Rambam builds a building as he always does. So the Rambam takes us into it gently and gradually. Says the Rambam, Tzoras, Eir What is the definition of the form of biblical leprosy? Of skin, the skin of the flesh. Definition number one, he, Sheyal bin Mokimoer, is that the skin of the person's flesh turns white. A person's skin is not white. A person's skin is what we call flesh tone, skin tone. It's not white. Suddenly, a section of skin becomes white. Betiyah halab nunias, and that the whiteness we're talking about becomes at least as white. Chikrum beitzo. At least as white as the membrane of an egg. The thin membrane surrounding the egg white. We're not talking about the egg white itself, which is even whiter. We're talking about that grayish-whitish membrane surrounding the white of the egg. You know that little thing you got to peel off if it gets in your way? That's the minimum white. Avobot labnunius. Any white color. Shehi deho mikrum Which is darker than this membrane of the egg. Or lower, meaning, or less white. Ain't not saras. It's not saras. Ella bohaku. The Torah has a word bohak. Bohak means it's a boo-boo. Something's going on, but it ain't leprosy. That's the biblical term, bohak, means you got a problem, but leprosy is not. It's a condition. So that's introduction. Paragraph number one, we're talking about the skin whitening, becoming unusually white, at least compared to the whiteness of the membrane of an egg. Bays, the albamaris, yes, bitsaras, In fact, there are four different whites. There's white and whiter and whitest and whitest. I made up those words. Bego, hey. Laban, ah, a very strong white. Be mucho strong, mucho white. Shane, my love, there's nothing more white than this white. What does this super white look like? Shunita, it appears to be in the human skin. When you have a section of white in the human skin, what does it look like? Hashem, like snow. Snow white. That's not the one with the dwarfs. It's white like snow. Huanikra, this is called in the Torah, Baheres. And the word Baheres is one of the words repeated in the Torah, describing leprosy. Says the note here, it comes from the word Bahir, which means clear, radiant, shiny, super white, like really white. So that's the white of snow. And again, you ever walk outside in a very snowy uh, outside with the whole area around you is snow. There was a blizzard. And it's like the world is white. It's like, wow, everything looks white. So that's the power of the white snow. That's Baharis. That's the most white form of leprosy you can have. And as we will learn, they would teach the Kohanim to recognize color. And the Kohanim would have to be able to see if this is one of the whites that qualify for leprosy or not. Or it's just, or it's just a bohawk. Or it's just a, a boo-boo. Did you use the word boo-boo when you were a kid? That was like a big word when I was a kid. Okay. Then there's a white which is a little less white than snow. It looks like clean wool of a sheep that's one day old, which means before the sheep got involved in all kinds of schmutz, and before the wool gets dirtied, pure, newborn sheep, newborn wool. It's like, uh, you know, growing up in New York. The uh, New York climate was able to take beautiful white snow and make it great. Who <laughs> you got to get to the snow, you got to get to the wool before the environment. Put smog all over it. This is called se'ace, that's level number two, a little bit less of the white, and that's the white of brand new, clean, white wool. Like, you know, baba, black sheep, have you any wool? But that's a white sheep. Then there is Vileva and the white, which is darker than that, poquito, a little bit, and that's Shedeya Kisid Hahechel. This one looks like the lime of the Holy Temple, which was a white, but a little bit of a darker white. The lime that they covered the walls of the Holy Temple with was a whitish. Says the Rambam, he or who told the Sabaheres. In fact, the white, which is comparable to the lime of the Holy Temple structure, is an offshoot of Baheres. Remember, what was Baheres? Snow. Lime is an offshoot of the snow white color. Venikra sapachas, this is called in the Torah sapachas. What is sapachas? A derivative of the snow white color, and it's a lime building color. 
And finally, there's a white that's even darker than the lime of the base Amigdash. And this is that membrane of the egg which we began with. That's the darkest white you can have. So again, the order, according to the Rambam here, is you go from snow, to wool, to lime, to egg membrane. Those are the four whites. And he, this egg membrane white color, tell this is a derivative of se'es, of the se'es, and that is the lamb wool color. So you have snow, a derivative of snow is the lime of the temple building, and you have wool, a derivative of the wool is the egg. I believe that's the right way to say it. And the damzed, he tapachas, this is also called tapachas. So therefore, to wrap it up, we learn, that the look, which is like the lime of the temple vegetable, who that's the offshoot, or the sapachas, or the derivative of baheres, which we learned is the first, is snow white. So temple lime is a derivative of snow white, and the white of the white membrane of the egg, he is an offshoot, is a derivative of sapachas of seis, of the sapachas of seis, of the wool white. Shein lashin sapachas, again according to the Rambam, the word sapachas means tefeilah, secondary Derivative, secondary, byproduct. From here, we learn, and again, this is what the Rambam establishes. Maris Nagoyim, how many acceptable whites are there within this first category of leprosy? Shtayim Shein Arba Two, which are four. Baheres, you have Baheres. What's Baheres? Snow White, Visapachto, and its offshoot, which is the lime color of the Hecho. Seis, you have the wool, Visapachto, and its offshoot, which is the membrane, whitish color of that, one, of that egg membrane. So, okay, very nice. So, we have four whites. What do we do with them? I'm glad you asked. Gimel, Arba, Maris, these four colors of plague. It's not that they are four different worlds. It's not that one is different than the other. We're just learning that all of these whites are acceptable. They're all leprosy. That's all. You want to know what's the difference? That's the difference. That they're all leprosy. Kulam, Mitzdarsim says that they even combine with one another. Bein Lahokil, Bein Lahachmer, whether it's going to make, whether combining them will make the situation more lenient or more severe, it makes no difference. They combine. Bein Mitzkil, whether it's at the beginning of the cycle, we're going to learn about cycles, seven day cycles, 14 day cycles. Maybe the safe Hashim at the beginning of the seven, the end of the seven, Bailah Shalita, I'm gonna say after the leper has been excused and they told him you don't have leprosy, go see a dermatologist. Or he has been told you have certain leprosy. It makes no difference. All of these whites are white. Kate give me a for instance, as they used to say in the work when I was a kid. Echod nega, shayakula love and kishelik, whether there is a plague which is total all white like snow, a kasida echel or like the lime of the vegetable of the temple, a kitsemanoki or like clean white wool before it got dirtied, a or like the egg white membrane. The echot negah shayim mixes halim kimar habaheres, or perhaps part of this plague was like the look of baheres, or mixosik kimar haseis, and part of it was like seis, or mixosik kimar hasapachas, and these are just other words for the various levels of white, snow white, lime white, or sapachas is the offshoot of snow, or the offshoot of wool, which is the egg white. Hakel kimar echot uchashu. Bottom line is, it's all the same. It's a white and it's a plague. In Canaan, in that case, now you're saying it's all the same and it makes no difference. So I'm used to we got a question. Lama, minom, chachamim. Why do our sages enumerate them and make a big deal about this and that? <laughs> it has no relevance. The Yomru, why did our sages say, Maris Negoyim, that the color of plague, Shtayim Shein Arba, are two, which are four? Why do you need to know? Why don't you just say white? By the way, you talk to somebody who really knows colors, they will tell you there are not four kinds of white. They'll tell you there's a hundred kinds of white. You ask me, it was colorblind? I'll say there's white. Leave me alone, don't bother me. The reason the Torah gives us this distinction, or the oral law, in order that we understand these colors. Because any Kohen who doesn't recognize these colors, a Kohen who's colorblind, this is a problem. Which may say, and the Kohen has to know their names. When they train him, they send him to leprosy school, and they train him, and they inform him, if he can't get it, he looks at it, he says, I don't know. He should not supervise, he should not examine plagues. And by the way, we learn in, in, in the order of plagues that there could be, and there often was, a, an expert, Torah scholar, colorologist, who was standing next to the Kohen and helping him. But the Kohen, even a little kid Kohen, could pronounce pure or impure, only a Kohen could do that, but the Kohen didn't always have the color knowledge. The Kohen has to understand and has to recognize what he has to say. Zuhi habaheres. Ah, what I'm looking at is baheres, which is snow white. We learned earlier. The Zuhi sapachto, and this is its offshoot, which is the line of the Hechel. Zuhi haseis, this is seis, which is the wool. The Zuhi sapachto, and this is its derivative, which is the membrane of the egg white.
Okay? So we have that straight. This is the Rambam's look at this interpretation of these colors. I made a broker earlier, it's going to have some tea. Now, the plot thickens. Just as you thought you had it all figured out. Says the Rambam, What if this whitish look, which resembles any of the above four whites, from the above four whites, if it had mix us, poquito, mix us a little bit, Admumius, reddish, a little reddish, mixed with it, it's got a tint of red. The fact that it has some reddish tint to it does not preclude it from being diagnosed as saras. It's also saras. The Torah speaks about it specifically. Shenemar, a baheres, levona, or a white baheres, which is, I believe, that snow white. Adam Demis, which is reddish. So a snow white could be reddish. Muadin Lasais, a wool white could be reddish. But Lasapachas, shall say, or the derivative of Saes, which is the membrane of the white of the egg, I believe, or the Sapachas Abaheres, and the derivative of Baheres, which is the line, I believe. Bahamare has this look, Shuvaura, which is mixed, Milabnunius, from whitish. Uma'adam, a little red, it's white, but it's got a little reddish. When you have a little red, it's called reddish. When you have a little green, it's called greenish. When you have a little Jew, it's called Jewish. <laughs> I'm such a funny guy. Hu, Hanikra, this is called Posuch. This is called posuch. So when we use the word posuch, the term means mixed. It's in Aramaic, according to Targum, Yonis and Benuzio. So we're going to use the word posuch. It means mixed. Now, the Ketzad, Mariah, Posuch, Barba, Maris, Elu, if you have four different whites that get darker and darker, what do we mean when we say we have red involved? How does that work? Is it the same amount of red? No. Said the Rambam, I'll give you a formula. Ki'ilu, hein arba, kaisis, malayas, of. Imagine, and this is what we call in the Torah world, imagery, imagery, you have to imagine. You have a cup of milk. What is milk? White. If your milk isn't white, by the way, you should give it back. In the first cup of wine, actually you have four cups of milk. Imagine you have four cups of milk, A, B, C, D. And in cup A, you have two drops of blood. Again, blood is red. You know, maybe we could use red dye number three. Two drops of something very red, blood. In the fourth, you have Arba keeping four drops of blood, so you double the blood volume. Two to four is doubling the two. In the third cup, in cup C, you have double the four. Shemena keeping eight drops of blood, or red substance. In the fourth one, Shisha also keeping double eight, sixteen. That's the look that will match the four whites mixed with red. The most mixed, which means Baheres, the shiny one with the blood is the fourth. And the mixed with Sace is the third. And the Sapachas of the Baheres, the derivative of Baheres, is the second. Is like the first. So we go backwards as we get brighter and brighter, less and less blood drops. And again, all this blood drops and the milk, we're not talking about drinking it, we're talking about a color formula. Okay. Now he says in hey and five, Call Hamaras or all the above colors. Bain ha love one, whether we're talking about the four whites. Bain ha we're talking about the four mixed reddish whites. Mitzvah and Zed, they're all leprous. They all combine with one another. For all practical purposes, they're like one look. It makes no difference. So, in the interim, in the meantime, we learned about eight whites. We learned about snow. We learned about temple line. We learned about wool. We learned about egg membrane. We learned about each with mixture of red. So, we got eight different whites. They're all the same. They're all leprosy. Color, for color purposes. We haven't gotten to the other details yet. So therefore, whether the plague area, which we will talk about, is totally white, it's all the same. Makes no difference. Whether for leniency or for severity. So now that we have taken care of that, we now know that there are four whites, and therefore levels of mixture. Next, six. I'll give you a rule, says the Rambam. And this rule is actually specked out in the Torah. Of course, it depends how you interpret it. This is the Rambam's interpretation. Any look of biblical leprosy of the skin, a is not called a plague. Related Tamen does not defile. This is all about defilement. Until the appearance of this blemish, the appearance of this so-called plague, has to be deep, deeper than the skin, deeper than the surface of the flesh. Now the question is, what does deep mean? It doesn't mean that as you're feeling it, you go down. That's not the deep we mean. 
Ela b'marisayim. We mean visually deep. It has to look deeper. It's a deeper color, a deeper look. So it's not surfacey deep. It's visually deep, like a deep white. Kimari hachamo hanidis la'ayin amukam inasayel. The Rambam gives us an example. You look at, and I'm looking at it right now. You look at sunlight, and you look at shade. Sunlight has the appearance of a deeper look than the shade. The shade is more surfacey. The sunlight makes it look deeper. <coughs> That's the deep that we're talking about. A look of deep. However, if the look of this white spot, or the mixed white spot, meaning reddish white spot, compared to the rest of the skin, is equal pasqual with the sin, it looks the same as the skin, or it looks even higher rather than deeper, it's not a plague, because that's not what we're talking about. The Torah keeps repeating this, deeper, and this is the Rambam's interpretation of deep, <coughs> giving an appearance of deep because it's shinier. Ella, what is it if it's not a plague? It's some kind of rash, some kind of skin condition, but it's not biblical leprosy. So now we know that it has to have a deep look to it. The Torah's word for that is amok. Like we are in the valley. In Hebrew, the valley is emek. Emek means deep. Why is it a valley? Because it's deep. Amok means deep. Now, how big does this spot have to be? I'm glad you asked. Zion 7. Sheer, the size, the minimum. Kol, nigitaras, of all plagues of biblical leprosy. Neitaras, other we're talking about human leprosy, which we're beginning with. Neitaras, because we were talking about garment leprosy, which comes later. How big or how little can it be? What's the minimum size? As they say, minimum. Kigris, hakilti, shehu, meruba. It has to be the minimum size of a Silk, silicon or Hilkian grease of a bean coming from Hilki, and it has to be minimum size of a square. Some say these beans grew in squares, others say you have to be able to measure it in a square, even though it's not square, but a square bean has to fit into that size. Now, let me simplify it for those of us who are familiar with the United States currency. This is a halachic term that's often referred to when it comes to purity and impurity, even in modern days, having to do with Nida and so on. And this is the dime, the American dime. If the spot is bigger than the, than the volume of an American dime, which means, as we're going to learn about, it can't be very long and very narrow, it has to be a dime even though a dime is round. But a dime includes this square. Chilki could sit in the dime. So that's the size we're talking about. Now, the Rambam didn't have dimes, of course. So the Rambam says, it's a square area. Of the skin of the flesh. As big as it takes to grow 36 hairs. Six in the length. Six in the width. If it's less than six hairs, length and less than six hairs width, it's not considered a biblical plague of leprosy. And you can go and measure a dime. And that's the minimum, the length and width of a dime. A square has to be able to fit into that dime. And that is in general what is known as the grease. This is a term which is used in halacha. Is it bigger than a grease? Is it smaller than a grease? English. Is it bigger than a dime than an American dime? Is it smaller than an American dime? Okay. Now the Rambam says in Ches 8 Nega, a plague, where the width of this plague was only five hairs, less than a dime. I feel like even if it was a foot and a half long, an arm long, a cubit long, it's pure, which means we're not talking about total square footage. We're talking about a dime. It's got to have that volume. Not stretched. You have to have the grease has to fit into it. Again, by the way, all minimum measures are from Hashem. They were transmitted by God to Moshe and by Moshe to us on Mount Sinai. Even though it's not written in the Torah, it comes from the Torah. It comes from God. It's not something the rabbis made up. And that's a general rule. Minimum measures are given as laws from Moshe to Mount Sinai. Moving right along to 9. Whenever the Torah uses the word Baherez, which is quite common in the section of leprosy. By the way, I want to just pause for a moment and say what I actually wanted to say earlier, but when you get to my age, you forget what you want to say. We learned that the whole laws, the whole section of leprosy is made up of eight laws, eight of 613. That's a drop in the sea. Yet there are almost two complete Torah portions devoted to this. And they are Tazriah, the vast majority of Tazriah is devoted to this. Mitzorah, the vast majority of Mitzorah, if not all of it, is devoted to this. So you have two of 53 portions. That's like 126th of the Torah is dedicated to leprosy. That's the important place that these laws take in the Torah. So... I know for us it's strange and <clears throat> challenging and perhaps a little boring, but it's very basic Torah teaching with so much depth, level below level below level, hidden within it. So it's really worth us focusing on it. Okay. Whenever the Torah uses the word Baheres, which is quite common, we learned that Baheres, we learned earlier, is the first form, the snow white, 
But whenever the Torah uses the word Baharez, who the Shar, Arba Marish, the same law applies to the other three whites, or the variegated or mixed color with the reddish. The who provided that? that the plague will be Kagris, minimum size Greece. This dime size. A yasser or larger. Could be larger than a dime, but it can't be smaller than a dime. The Greece size. So that's one condition. Condition number one is it has to be bigger than a Greece. Or as big as a Greece or bigger. Condition number two, it has to be deeper. It has to have a deeper visual than the skin of the flesh. In that case, why call it by Eretz? Which we learned earlier is the Snow White. What if it's not the Snow White? What if it's Ace or Sapachas? It says the Rambam now. <coughs> this is what we call, this is the Rambam's theory of relativity. Not to be confused with the Einstein's theory of relativity. He says, imagine a Baharet is very intense white. Imagine that it appears dark on the flesh of an albino. Because an albino is abnormally white from our perspective. So if you have a Baharet, the Baharet looks dark. Because the albino is even whiter than that. So here's something that's white, white, white. It looks dark. And Abaheres, which is very dark, meaning the minimum white, which would be the variegated egg white <coughs> look mixed with the blood, Nidus Bikushi Aza placed that on the hand of a black arm. It's going to look very white. So that white could look dark and dark could look white. Relative to what it's sitting on. You haven't noticed you go to a jewelry store? If you haven't gone to a jewelry store, go. It's a good experience. You go to a jewelry store, the jeweler always takes the gold or whatever he's showing you, the diamonds, and he puts it on, I don't know, like a deep velvet color. Why? That why? So you should buy. Because <laughs> it depends what it sits on. It's all what it looks like relative to the background. So white could be dark compared to very white. It could be white compared to very dark. The average, what we are concerned with is average. Which is not very white and not very dark, but it is a whitish, reddish. So now we've covered that. Moving right along in the next two paragraphs of this chapter, the Rambam goes to the next step. As we learn in the Chumash, once you've ascertained that there is this spot, which is big enough and white enough and deep looking enough, what happens then? Moving right along, there are three signs which tell us that this biblical leprosy condition that's being shown is not kosher. It's impure. What are the three signs? All this comes from the Chumash. Sign number one is, say your loved one, is there white hair growing in it? Is there white hair growing in this spot? <coughs> number two, is there healthy flesh within this spot? Within the spot there's suddenly a patch of healthy looking flesh. This is a problem. White hair, problem. Healthy looking flesh, problem. Or the third is, hapisyein. if it's spreading expanding, perhaps you can use a modern medical term, metastasizing, is it growing? Growth is not good as it relates to leprosy. White hair, healthy looking flesh, or expansion, not good. Ushloshna all three, are specified, they're specked out in the Torah. For example, if somebody has a baheres, which means, as we learned earlier, a condition of white, whitish blotch of skin, and it meets the conditions described earlier, which means it's bigger than a dime, which is big as a dime or bigger, and it looks deep. And in it is growing white hair, in it is growing healthy looking new flesh when the Kohen will see it will examine it the Kohen will say this is certainly a problem the Kohen will give a the word means the Kohen will give a decisive decision the Yemen will say Tome, impure have a good day you're not pure that's if it had one of these two signs but if it didn't have the white hair it didn't have the healthy looking flesh then you lock this fellow up it doesn't mean you lock him up you quarantine him that's a nice word, right? You quarantine and you separate him from everybody for seven days. Oh, and on the seventh day, the Kohen examines him again. The word means he sees him, but it doesn't mean he sees him. He examines him. If this biblical leprosy condition, which he calls Baharis, this whitish blotch, developed, say your love on, or white hair, which means it didn't a week ago, but now after the seven-day quarantine it does. A Michior develops healthy skin within it. Or, there's another possibility, which couldn't have happened last week. Why? Because you need to compare it to something. Or it's red, and now it's bigger. It's bigger, it's spreading. You know, even today, sometimes you go to a doctor and he takes an indelible pen, makes a circle around something, he says, let's see next week if it spreads. That's like quite common. One of these three conditions, white hair, healthy looking skin, or spreading, is a decisive factor. It's declared impure. That's if it did. 
develop one or more of these three. But what if there was not developed born within this condition? Not healthy looking skin sprouting within it. Not white hair, but it did not spread, expand. He's quarantined for a second week, a second seven days. If in the second week, one of the three above mentioned conditions developed, what are the conditions? White hair, healthy looking flesh or spreading, then he decisively designates him as impure. If not, then this fellow is declared pure. But if there is no, he sends him home, he says, go home, you can go to Starbucks, coffee bean, it's not a problem. Because unlike what we're going to learn later when it comes to the biblical leprosy of skin, leprosy, there is no greater quarantine than two weeks. Two weeks is the maximum. One week, and then a second week. What if after the Kohen declared him pure, and he sent him home, what if then the plague area expanded? Spread. What if after the two weeks it developed right here? Or it began developing healthy flesh within it? Then you don't start all over again. The Kohen just looks and says, okay, you're not pure. The Kohen declares him impure, which is an interesting law. Because suddenly, boom, you dial up the closing paragraph of chapter 1 of leprosy. Baheres, it was a Baheres condition, which we learned earlier is the snow white color, the strongest white. It was powerful, powerfully white, Kishelig, like snow. And after the quarantine period, what happened to this powerful snow white white? Nazis to Krumbetsa became like the least powerful of the four, which is this membrane of the white of the egg. So it went from power white one to the least number four. It really dropped in whiteness. It's much less white. Is that a good thing? Or it started at number four. It was white. The lowest level of white, the, the membrane egg white. When Nazis Kishelik, and then it became whiter than all the other whites. Whiter than the lime of the Hecho. Whiter than wool. And now it's at snow white. Became very white. Does it change anything? Should we take bets here? It remains the same. Makes no difference. Because the power of the strength of the white, the level of white, is not a sign of impurity. And the weakening of the power of the white, going from snow white to egg white membrane, is not a sign of purity. It's just that all of these are white. But, but, if the power of the white was reduced to less than four, less than the membrane of the egg white, the Nasekeya Mikrobates became darker, or lighter, whichever way you use the word, than the egg white skin, the membrane, Sharinasis, because it became, as we learned earlier, a bohak. It's not leprosy. It's just a something, a booboo. Because therefore, Toher, that's why it's pure. Why? Because it lost the categorization of any of the above whites. In Cain, in that case, Mahuzesh and Amabapir, if you're telling me that the fact that the biblical plague of leprosy lightens or darkens is insignificant as long as it doesn't leave the lowest category, why does it say that it became darker? Because it did not spread. The verse specifically says, if the plague lightened or darkened. What is the verse telling us? That it lost from its white? The answer is yes, if it loses and it leaves all the categories. If it becomes darker than all the colors of white, oh, it is pure. Or it did not darken, it did not spread. It did not develop white hair or healthy looking skin. Then it is pure. End of chapter 1.